You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 381. You're listening to The Lively Show. This podcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra presence to your everyday. Hello, my friends, and welcome to today's show. Today is a Q&A episode, so you just have a little time with me today, and then we'll be back with another Beauty of Life episode on Thursday. So before we get into the Q&As, I just want to say on March 22nd, we are going to be launching the new BellaLively.com. This is going to be a full relaunch, kind of a reboot, rebirth Rebirth really feels kind of appropriate for the fact that the name is changing. So it's kind of, you know, not just the company, but also you could say, you know, an extension of myself with my own name changing. It just feels so magical. I have to say, going through redesigns, rebrands over the years since I've been a jewelry designer, blogger, podcaster, I've gone through many iterations of new launches. This one is truly next level. We have so many beautiful things to show you. There are many details. I'm going to keep them all as surprises right now, but so many ways that you're going to be able to interact with each other as a community if you want to. And also many free resources are going to be available to you. Some that you might have heard of before that you know, living room classes, hint, hint, might be there. And also new free resources, which I'm creating as of next week, actually. I've been excited for these ones. I've never done something like this new project. This will be freely available on the new website, the community space. We have fun community aspects, which I have a feeling you guys are going to love, love, love being a part of if you want to be a part of that. And just the beauty of the site, the videos, the show going into season 10 of The Lively Show, everything, new podcast cover, new podcast song, everything's going new. Even my Instagram name will be changing, but all that detail and all of that launch will be during the launch party. We actually decided since this is so exciting for us as a team, we're going to create a little launch party. So if you want to be there and walk through the site with us, we're going to unveil it and take that coming soon banner off it and then walk you through all the different aspects of the site. We have little surprises for those that join us. You're invited if you want to, to dress or drink something sparkly. I will be drinking and dressing sparkly myself in honor of this new launch. And I just, it's gonna be fun. Whether you're a community member that's just found this work or if you're IVFT grad or old time, long time podcast or even blog reader or listener, we're excited to welcome anyone who's interested in joining us for the launch party. You can also get the recording of it. It's gonna take place at 6 p.m. London time, which is where I'll be. So early evening London time, which is daytime US. are welcome to join us. Like I said, it's on March 22nd, 6 p.m. London time. And that will be over at jesslively.com slash launch party is where you'll be able to right now go and register to get the Zoom information so that you can join us on that day or get the recording if you're not able to make that exact time for the call. It's going to be really fun. I'll also probably sit and answer any hot seat questions you might have for me afterwards as well. Okay, so now let's get into the Q&A for anyone that has sent them in. Thank you guys so much for sending these questions in. I'm going to get to as many as I can, but there's certainly, I think, over 20 questions in this DM. So, And I tend to spend a little bit of time as I go through them. So We'll get to as many as possible. And I'm just going in order of what I see in my phone. So let's start with Isabel. We've got, hi, Bella. Do you have any tips on releasing vibrating bean bags that shift in the body? Thanks. Okay, so bean bags for those, I think you guys probably know if you've been listening to the show for the while, bean bags are my word for the emotional stuck energies that live within our body that often go without our awareness. And we also often don't know how to release. But if you've been listening to The Beauty of Life, Danielle and Jennifer have released many a bean bag on the show. So you're probably probably somewhat familiar if you've listened to the series. So as far as tips on releasing them, that shift in the body, yes, often they will move and shift. And the whole point is to follow with awareness, the moving and shifting and keep feeling and breathing into the shifting and evolving energies as they move. As they transmute, they will continue to move forward and move out. So there's nothing really different about a beanbag that's moving and one that's staying put. You're just bringing your awareness to follow the flow of that energy as it moves through your body. Now we have 
Natalia April, who said, questions for your mind or your inner voice? I'd love an inner voice Q&A. Um, well, I guess that's not a question, but something that I can do. So if you guys ever want to ask a question to my inner voice, you're welcome to just kind of <laughs> asterisk the question or just let me know that that's where you'd like it to come from. I once did a poll on Instagram just to see if people liked just my inner voice purely kind of channeling an inner voice answer for you versus Q&A questions to the mind. And there was a very healthy mix of responses. And most of them liked the idea of both answers from my mind and my inner voice. So that's probably what I'll do for most of these episodes going forward with the exceptions. Every now and then I might feel like doing a solo inner voice session. But for now, it's a little bit of a mix because often also questions are directed, depending on the type of question, to my mind and to like what I like doing as a human on the planet kind of stuff. So those are answered from my mind for those things. Okay, now we have Tamara Lorraine who said, what does or did your personal beanbags practice look like? Do you release them as they come up or do you search for them when you have some extra time? Okay, so in the beginning of me learning how to do beanbag release, I used to lay down as I went to bed. So I would go to sleep as everyone does at the end of the day. And I would lay in bed and I would scan the body for heaviness or tightness in my body. I wouldn't say they were triggered emotional beanbags because somebody did something to me at the moment. I was just scanning the body for any heaviness or any restrictive flow of the breath, basically. So if I wasn't able to lay down and breathe smoothly into my diaphragm, not forcefully with the mind into the diaphragm. But if the breath was not naturally going down into the diaphragm and breathing deeply and smoothly and calmly, naturally, if it wasn't naturally occurring, there was probably some kind of non-physical lump or bump in the way. And so I would scan for those heavinesses. They weren't triggered sadness or fear or stories, or at least I didn't know what they were all connected to. They were just lumps of stuckness that would impede the breath from being naturally smooth and deep. So I would just release those areas as I found them. There could be two, three, five, depending on the night. And then once I got to those releasings, my body just relaxed and opened up. I could breathe deeply through the body and I'd fall very peacefully to sleep. So that was one time of my normal life in the earlier years where I would do that. Now I don't lay in bed and have those lumps or bumps coming up, so I don't need to do that. But for that initial period of awareness growing within myself, I started to realize that this was all in me and I could release it. And so that's what I would do when I was going to bed. But like I said, now I don't really need to. So now it's definitely more about if something is coming up for me in my regular day-to-day life, that I will beanbag it as needed in the day-to-day actions. Now, if you're reacting, I remember one very specific beanbag I've talked and a handful of coaching calls about, which was I was at a conference and I was being triggered by one of the women at the conference who was very sweet and well-meaning, but she offered to drive everybody in the conference to and from the conference in a car. And she was a very slow mover, speaker. Everything she did was slow and it was really irritating me, but I could tell it was a beanbag because it was not reasonable. The reaction I was having to her slowness was unreasonable. It did not make sense. It wasn't like anyone else felt this way about her. I was being triggered. So after I was being triggered in the car with her or around her during the day, that night, I remember laying in bed. And since I had just been dropped off from the end of the conference, I was able to still feel the beanbag and release it. So sometimes you can have beanbags like driving in the car with somebody that you've just met, like I was. And I didn't release the beanbag while I was driving in the car with her, but I did it in the evening when I was alone and had the space and time to do so. So you can release them on demand if you need to, or when it's convenient for you. Even, I guess you could say, depending on your work scenario and your level of awareness and situations, you could even get triggered at work, let's say, and then go to the bathroom at work and release. Depending on the severity of the beanbag and you know what is going to happen for it, if it just needs some breathing and feeling and shaking it out, then you could definitely theoretically just go to the bathroom and release or go for a walk at lunch, sit down on a bench further away from the location and release. So you don't have to do these at your desk while you're reading the email. That may not be the right time and place to do it, but you could do it shortly after when you have some time and space to take yourself away. Or let's say you're really triggered by your children. I can imagine that happens. So if you're triggered by your kids, you don't have to like beanbag right in front of them while they're having their meltdown. You can have your reaction to their meltdown. And then when they're napping, you could release. So it doesn't have to be 
in the exact moment and instance it's happening, unless that is something that is available to you to do based on that circumstance. It's truly just dependent on a case-by-case scenario. Now we have an anonymous question asker who says, I have another question about beanbags, but okay to slip in and allow others if it doesn't make it in. Does this mean, and please use me anonymously, as I just have, uh, I have a beanbag that doesn't seem to go away. I don't feel an emotion, but I do feel pulsating sensation in my throat where some trauma has occurred. I feel it all the time when I do body scans. Is there any thoughts on how to release this? Okay, so it sounds like there's a beanbag, doesn't seem to go away, doesn't feel like an emotion. I would ask your inner voice, depending on the person that asked this question, how good you are with your inner voice and how much you've spent time with your inner voice before. If you're a beginner, this may not be the easiest question to ask or even really useful. (laughs) But if this person happens to be a little bit more of an advanced person, or if this person ever takes a class with me, I'm happy to do some coaching on this and do some hot seat questioning to help release this. But I would say from what I've got in the question, I would see if you are a more advanced person with inner voice, I would ask your inner voice, is this related to this life or a past life? Obviously, she has mentioned that there is trauma connected to this in this life. So it could just be this life, but it also could have happened in less life as an echo of another life. I know that sounds wild to many people, including myself a few years ago. Can't believe I'm just like casually throwing this around, but I gotta say, as my awareness has grown over the years, I don't like get lost in it in any way and get like trying to live out the past rather than the now. Obviously, she's feeling it in her throat now, but I find sometimes really, really, really persistent patterns, no matter how much I've personally been bagged. For example, um, this feeling of sadness around love or love being like going to go away. This is when I was in my dating years. Um, I finally recognize that the level of reaction I was having, I knew it was something deeper than just my life. By the time I was actually, I was always feeling this feeling. So this is kind of an anecdote to this kind of story of a throat sensation that won't go away. So for her, it's just a throat sensation, but I would ask, is this a past life connection? If not, if it is, then ask, what do I need to know to help release this past life situation? And I'll give you my now anecdotal story of my own thing. It wasn't in my throat specifically. It was just this crippling sadness of being a kind of abandoned or worried that love was going to go away kind of feeling. And I'd beanbag and beanbag on that subject all the time. But while I was single, it kind of felt very logical to scenarios that I was creating. I was creating my own reality. So I was, of course, attracting situations that would support this feeling of kind of sadness, loneliness, abandonment, fear of love being lost or going away kind of feeling. And I would beanbag and beanbag. It would just be so intense. And then I finally could see this. This is deeper than just me on a day when I was with Atlas and I was we're still in the relationship and I was in London and he was in Portugal and wanted to meditate for the day. And as he was meditating, I wasn't able, obviously, because he wanted to have this little like inner day of himself that was totally fine as one might want to have time to meditate all day. That's what he wanted to do. I was in Harrods department store in the Gucci department of all places, just wandering around the store during the afternoon. I had free time and nothing else to do. So I was just wandering around the store. And I was having a literal, essentially a panic attack in the department store, like I had, I almost was in tears. I was almost shaking. I was like, oh my God, because I wasn't able to talk to him while he was meditating that day. And I was like, this is not, oh, somebody broke up with me or, oh, this situation might not work out. This was like a normal day. He just wanted to meditate. So I could tell this reaction, panic attack in tears in a department store was not mine. It wasn't, it was, I was experiencing it certainly, but it wasn't my own situation. So I went home, I went to the Airbnb that I was staying at and I asked my inner voice and it showed me basically the knowingness that I got from it was that it was a small girl. I heard my inner voice say brothers and sisters, doesn't matter, but it was like, I think it said three boys, two girls. And somehow this little girl that I was feeling into of a past life lost her siblings. I don't know if they died or she got taken away, but it's irrelevant, the details of where, when, what happened in that case. But basically the essential feeling she was feeling is that loving is losing, my inner voice said. That's what my neural net was still wired to from her trauma. And so I was feeling into this feeling because it was actually hers and my inner voice showed me bubbles. So my bubble of reality was touching her bubble of her reality. And when bubbles touch, if you look closely at bubbles, when they touch, they make a flat spot where they both overlap each other. They stay in their own bubbles, but they kind of have this flat edge that they share. 
I was feeling her reaction to her scenario, which was far more severe than Atlas meditating that day, which I was feeling in London that day. And so I released and helped her integrate into me and said, you know, no matter what happens, I'm never without you. And I just loved and loved and loved her and helped her find greater understanding, clarity, and peace in our connection, not relying on her siblings, which is what she was so, so, so sad about for whatever reason in her life. Once I did that, I don't have that feeling anymore. It is amazing. I also have a friend who had this sensation of panic constantly showing up for her. And she has children, so it's very understandable that her schedule is busy, so she could be feeling panicked. But the level of panic was so great that when I would have meals with her, she would be close to tears about this panicked feeling about her schedule and not having enough time for things. So we did an inner voice session. I asked, is this her life or is this something else? It was another life that had panic. She helped resolve that panic and now she doesn't have it in her own, which is amazing because the day before she had gone to a kinesiologist, found out cortisol levels were high. So her body obviously was registering all this panic she was feeling was real in her reality, but it wasn't from her reality. She's just growing in awareness to what was happening somewhere else. And once we were able to resolve it, she's been fine. I've even followed up with her about it a few different times since then. And she said she actually has more on her plate now than she even had in the past, but the feeling's not there and she's not overwhelmed and she's not panicked. Even though there's a lot happening, the feeling of panic is no longer present because that past life now has integration. So That would be one on the more advanced side of things for this person. If this is not where you're at with the journey of consciousness stuff, do not worry. Just keep bringing awareness to the throat and feeling the feeling in the throat where it is. Just feel it. Whenever you notice it, go in in pure awareness and feel it. Breathe in and feel it. And let the mind step aside and let your awareness and your body work together to shake, burp, yawn, stretch, vomit, cry, breathe, yell, whatever it might need, it will take this vibration and will transmute it over time. So have patience with it. And if you've got that more advanced connection, you could do a little bit of that inner voicing on the past lifey things. Or if you ever end up taking a class with me, we could do a hot seat about it and I can help you kind of go through that as well. Okay. So now we have Kristen Giles who says, any thoughts uh, when it comes to mindfulness and alcohol consumption? I know a lot of spiritual people don't drink at all. Some drink some, et cetera. Curious on your take with it. I think that alcohol is a lot like chocolate. Some people like it. Some people don't. Some people feel you know, sugar addiction and binging on something and others don't. So I think that there's nothing inherently wrong or right about any subject. Um, whether it's chocolate, whether it's drinking tar or gasoline or alcohol or wine or I guess wine's alcohol or broccoli or cheese or gluten. Some people like certain things, some people don't, but ultimately the craving for certain things, you know, that's like a beanbag inside of you. So the cravings and the addictions thereof, which I actually think are just super persistent, either past life or ancestral lineage beanbags that are really, really, really deep and many times hard to release. But I remember asking my inner voice about this and it said that nothing, like going from all or nothing on a subject, let's say it's an addiction to alcohol, drugs, um, porn, anything, like anything that people could get addicted to. What humans typically do is kind of find this all or nothing about the subject. And of course it can include alcohol, but the, it doesn't have to be just that. It could be even social media. It could be anything that people get addicted to eating, exercising, all and nothing are kind of how the mind will go into duality. So it'll always do, let's say drinking, or it'll go into AA or avoid drinking altogether. And both of those reactions from a complete addiction to a complete avoidance of an addiction is not the, as Buddha would say, like the middle way. And I call it like the higher path outside of the pendulum. So swinging from one to the other is not resolving the actual issue at hand. So any single thing is not good or bad. And by the way, Eckhart Tolle, I've heard him talking about drinking and he does occasionally drink. It doesn't define him, but he's not against it either. So as as another example, as she was saying about drinking being always good or always bad or spiritual perspectives on it. But what I found from my own inner voicing on the subject basically of addiction is that 
just going from all into the subject to all out of it without actually releasing the root, being that pattern of craving and addiction and all of that stuff, isn't actually going beyond it. It's just you're still attached. You're just attached on the other side of the pendulum. So you're still on the same string of pendulum, but you're just on the other side of the swing. And it's not actually dissolving the pattern in the first place because the pattern isn't the alcohol. The pattern isn't the drugs. The pattern isn't pornography or any. These are just things in this reality or the broccoli or I don't know, the exercise, whatever the thing is, they're just things. And sometimes we do them, sometimes we don't. The craving towards the thing is actually the thing that needs to be seen through and dissolved. It's not about avoidance of the craving because the craving then still exists. It will just go into a different topic in your life. I remember this from Brooke Castillo. If you remember Brooke from years ago on the podcast, she has done tons of work with women on eating and overeating. And this is years ago. I don't know actually what she's up to lately, but years ago, that was her main focus in her earlier part of her career. I don't know how much it is or isn't in her life now, but that was a huge thing, working with women that had overeating patterns. And then she noticed that a lot of those women would then focus on drinking. They would shift from overeating to Chardonnay or something like that. And so she was noticing this pattern and she mentioned it at some point in my conversations with her. But that's an example of this. So if you haven't actually dissolved the thing in the first place, which is the craving and the actual, I actually feel like the addiction kind of energy of this type of pattern is so deep. It's like almost like a parasite energy feeding off of you. And Eckhart Tolle talks about the pain body wanting to feed on you and going dormant for a while and then coming back out. I actually see that, especially with this idea of addiction. It's like this beanbag inside is so, that is the thing, okay? So Kristen, when we're talking about alcohol, for me to be like, from my perspective on it, or like I said, this is anything people could be addicted. It could be overeating and binging food, which God knows I did for a long time too. I remember, by the way, with the eating side of my (laughs) journey, Oh my goodness. I used to think I was maybe pre-diabetic because the level of reaction my body would have to chocolate was so intense that I thought there must be something going on in my body that's not handling it. It's getting so excited by this chocolate. It's so addicted to it. There must be something, you know, really physically imbalanced within me. And I can tell you now that my body may have I don't know if it was, but it was reacting certainly emotionally and probably to some level physically to the chocolate. But I can now have chocolate in my life completely neutral. It is nice. I have it sometimes. I don't have it others. I have like, I used to have this point in my life where I couldn't even have chocolate in the house or my dorm room was actually in college when I was going through this. And I couldn't even have it in the room because I just, I just like, couldn't. I was like, oh my gosh, I have to eat it all now and I'll never eat another chocolate bar ever again starting tomorrow was always this repetitive cycle that I was stuck in. Ironically, as I'm saying this to you, I have four bars of chocolate I got on sale at Whole Foods (laughs) that are sitting in the cupboard right now. And I think I had some chocolate yesterday, but it literally slips my mind that it doesn't even matter to me having four bars of chocolate, or you could say four bottles of wine. Now that is because the craving for the subject is no longer present. So, but if it's not actually removed from the root, it'll just transfer to something else, that craving thing. So it often can come out in a certain substance or subject very heavily and pronounced. But if the actual craving piece is not dissolved away, it'll just resurface in another subject. So you can reject something you've been addicted to. Let's say social media. I know somebody in the past I was friends with, she took herself off Facebook. I mean, this is years ago. So Facebook, I guess, was more, I don't know if people are addicted to Facebook now too, but she just didn't feel Facebook was a good thing in her life. It like took over too much of her life. So then she stopped using Facebook altogether. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with stopping things you don't like. Obviously, there's many people that don't like alcohol, so they don't drink it. And if you don't like alcohol, don't drink it. If you don't like chocolate, don't eat it. Like don't do things you wouldn't enjoy. But if you actually enjoy the certain thing, avoiding it completely because of a, you know, pattern of dependency on it 
that's just a complete avoidance in that. I think there's sometimes you got to have compassion for your mind and being where it's at. And sometimes taking big breaks from things is a really good step to slowing down the momentum on the subject. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that. But as far as like a lifelong, you know, releasing of that actual pattern, that pattern will very likely, I would guess, this is a prediction, I don't really know, but I would guess it would come up in a future life. If it's not actually resolved, you could just maybe avoid the rest of this life. But if that craving pattern itself, that beanbag pattern is not dissolved. It's going to come out in other ways in this life or again in another one if it's just avoided in this one. And there's nothing to say that there's anything wrong with complete avoidance. But if the craving piece is not dealt with, then it's still there's an attachment to it, as my inner voice was saying. So it's like you don't have to completely avoid anything. You just want to get to the point where that thing is no longer got that attachment. And so that pattern of craving is far more interesting to look at than the actual substance itself. And so, like I said, with chocolate, my example, now chocolate is a completely neutral part of my life that is there, but it doesn't define it. It doesn't make it particularly better or worse. Any day is all the same, whether I have it or not, whether I have two pieces of it or four pieces of it is irrelevant. If I'm super hungry, maybe I'll have six little squares of chocolate. Okay. You know, but I'm not binging it till I feel like I can't feel comfortable unless my legs are laying up the wall, which is what I used to do when I was younger, eating God knows how much when I was binge eating. So those types of neutralities are really beautiful because then once the craving piece is released, then the substance can be in or out of your life. Like Eckhart Tolle says, sometimes my body likes a glass of wine. Sometimes it will have a second. It usually doesn't want a third. Like it just becomes this thing that exists in your life, but not defines it. It doesn't have that craving. So if you're in the subject, and it may not be for this person that asked the question, something that they really particularly care about in their life. And so it's irrelevant. Like I have alcohol if you want to have alcohol. Don't have it if you don't. Like have a half a glass if you want to have a half a glass. Have a sip if you want to sip. Have two glasses if you want two glasses. Like there's nothing wrong or right about the substance. What's not really great is the feeling of craving and addiction that's really ultimately often an ancestral pattern. My intuition showed me it as like links of a chain or thread of beads. So like a thread through different beads. So if all these people in the ancestral lineage are like beads. The bodies are the beads and the lifetimes. And then the thread can be some of that DNA, the programming in there. And it could even be past life stuff, depending on different people's genetic, I say genetic, but like soul makeup, you know, could be a mix of both. It could be one or the other, but there is this thread that weaves through and eventually needs to be broken, but it needs to be broken within the individual that's aware enough to choose it. How that impacts everything for everyone else, I think is Interesting. I've heard some kind of more esoteric people say that once you break the chain, it helps the rest. And like maybe it does break it for everyone else. I at least think it can help you break your own chain and break your own chain if you've got it in you and, uh, you know, have patience with it. It is a very persistent beanbag, but look for that idea of the feeling of crave. If something now for this person that may not be a relevant subject, but for anyone else that might have smoking weed or drinking or smoking cigarettes would be interesting because they always talk about how addictive cigarettes specifically are with nicotine. So I don't, I don't know, like an exception to nicotine. I don't have an answer on the subject of that versus these other things. Maybe they're the same. Maybe they're not. It's very, you know, I guess some people do occasionally smoke cigarettes without having the addictive tendencies, but I've heard most stories say that they eventually do get very uh, codependent to them. But let's say for something like smoking weed or even alcohol, many people drink alcohol or smoke weed. And I'm not saying either one's wrong or right. I'm just saying these are substances that some people do occasionally and other people do repetitively and with this sense of craving. And so it doesn't mean that the actual substance, obviously there are more sticky substances because of the actual way they interact with your body, but in and of themselves, like Eckhart's not you know, falling apart at the seams because he has the occasional glass of wine and it doesn't need to be something that, you know, other people do as well. Now, this is also to say there has to be an intense amount of awareness 
cultivated in the person to break that pattern. And so for many people, they're not at a state of that intense level of awareness. And it may not be this lifetime for doing that. And I don't think there's anything wrong with just letting out things for long periods of time that you, that don't serve you and coming back to it later or whatever. Like I'm not saying anyone's choice is wrong or right. And for someone, let's say if I had, for example, I don't, I don't think anyone in my extended family is, um, like on an AA journey or anything, but let's say someone was like, I would not think like my uncle so-and-so I'll make up a fake name. So I'm not making it. uncle Max. I don't think uncle Max is like bad if he's in AA, like by all means, uncle Max being in AA is wonderful. I'm so happy for him. Uh, but even Abraham Hicks, if you listen to Abraham Hicks, talk about the subject of alcohol, they will say this too. It's like why you drink is much more important than drinking or not drinking. And so they kind of edge to the same truth that my inner voice led me to, which is that the substances themselves are neutral, the choice for using them and why they're being used and how much they're being used for the reason of why and the intention behind it, all of that is far, far, far the actual addiction. The addiction is the thing, not the substance the addiction is addicted to. Does that land? So uh, releasing the addiction piece is the important thing. Otherwise, it's just going to get projected from alcohol to drugs to prescription drugs to it could go to many different things, to shopping, to eating, to getting sexual attention. Like it can do so many different things. It can just keep morphing because it's the addiction piece that needs to be looked at. The substances themselves, ultimately, when the addiction piece is resolved, become neutralized. And then you just do it for the actual amount you actually like it. Like who knew that I actually don't like chocolate enough to have four bars a day or whatever I was previously at. Now I can have four bars in my house for weeks and I'll just slowly chip away at them as they feel aligning. But they don't determine my joy for the day. They don't determine my joy for the week. There's no wrong or right about when I consume it. There's no time I have to stop eating it or finish it or any of that stuff. So that's the real, that's like a lot to be said. But I think that hopefully, I feel happy to share that because it's something that took a while of like inner voicing in myself to really kind of look at and understand at a deeper level is that there's this craving beanbag. And that does not necessarily go away in one session. So like that is being very diligent. And as Eckhart would say, like intensifying the awareness to those kind of craving ones is so, so important. And there's nothing wrong if, for example, my uncle Max was in AA. I would never think he's wrong for doing that. I would say great for him. If that's where he's at in his journey right now and it's serving him and making him happy, wonderful. If he was in cocoon and he was in a class with me and he was ready and felt aligned to that, his intuition was calling it to him, I would say for him, I'd be like, okay, this is an identity factor of being the addict. We have to let that go. We have to then just go straight to the craving and dissolve it at its root, which is this craving is in experience that awareness hasn't gotten behind yet in order to see through. And I would be in a cocoon level a class with somebody working on that. But there's nothing wrong with Uncle Max just doing this simple thing of letting go of what's not serving him or his family at all. So hopefully that explains everybody's on the journey. It is one of the ones that is the most difficult, most, most, most difficult because it has so many different layers. There could be ancestors, past lives. There could be a feeling of trying to leave situations that someone's not comfortable with for many other beanbag reasons connected to that. There's also the joy of the substance. So there is something about deleting some of that extra trigger that makes that substance so much sparklier and shinier and more magical than anything else in someone's life that needs to be dissolved and neutralized as well. So the joy that somebody gets out of whatever their thing is also not the joy, like the enduring beautiful parts of it, but the, you know, kind of like frizzy, not just the craving energy of I'm going to go for it, but also this, ooh, this is going to make me happy right now. Like that kind of like excitement for the substance pre, let's say, drinking or smoking or eating, whatever that is, whatever it might be, that also needs to be lost because it needs to be neutralized. Like I don't care about chocolate as much as I cared about chocolate before. It's just now nice, but I certainly don't need it any more than Eckhart needs wine. So that is a real like neutral where the subject, you may never drink wine again on the subject of alcohol or never have chocolate. If I really actually 
authentically didn't like chocolate, I wouldn't have it. Now I just authentically like it occasionally. And so it's in my life or out of my life, but it doesn't define my life or experience in any way whatsoever. So that's where the real freedom and middle way is. It's not to say that you have, because freedom's not on the other side of the pendulum. Freedom is not in rejection, if this makes sense. Freedom's not in rejection. It's in neutrality. It's not making it the devil. It's not making it the angel. It's not the savior. It's not the worst thing in the world. It's just a thing in the world. Like I said, gasoline earlier. Many people don't drink gasoline because it doesn't feel good to drink gasoline and the body doesn't react well to it. So people don't do it. And it doesn't mean that we make ourselves like reject it and go to Gasoline Anonymous to never have it. We just don't actually want it. And so if someone, when they've released an addiction quality to something like alcohol, doesn't actually like the thing in the first place after they've released the craving for it, then they won't even do it because it doesn't matter to them. For me, for example, I have tried weed a few different times or pot and smoked it, and I just didn't really care about it. <laughs> I don't think it's good or bad. I just was in experiences where some people gave it to me to try and I tried it and it was interesting, but it just didn't feel enjoyable. So I don't think about it or care about it. It just is a thing on the planet. I don't do it because I don't like it, but if I did like it, maybe I occasionally do it. So that's really neutral and just not doing something. (laughs) Chocolate I like, so I occasionally do it, but it's still neutral. Does that make sense? That's the real freedom. And then what we have to look at then is any of these substances are not the root. It's the craving underneath that that needs to be addressed or else it's going to pop up somewhere else. Okay. All right. Hopefully that's explaining everything. I have tons of compassion. It is one of, if not... One one of the most, if not the... I don't want to say the most because I don't know if it's the most, but it seems like one of the most difficult, difficult, difficult um, craving patterns to release. And also it may not be based on any individuals. It could just be the ancestral DNA coming through the body, which is no one's particular mental fault or anything like that. But also what's amazing is the inner voice is never feeling like a victim to anything. So going into your inner voice to find out clarity for yourself about your own let's say alcohol consumption, inner voice, do you want to drink alcohol or would you drink alcohol or not? Should we, shouldn't we? Why, why not? Why do I like it if you do like it? Why do I not? Do I drink it too much? All those kind of questions. Go to your inner voice for guidance on your specific scenarios. Okay, the inner wild said, have your feelings about death changed or shifted at all since your near-death experience in the riptide? No, not at all, actually. It hasn't changed whatsoever. Still happy to die. Just prefer not to drown. <laughs> Having already drowned in the past life of the little boy, you might have heard me share about in other podcasts. That is not a fun way to die. I have seen it from this other life, and I would prefer to die meditating out of my body. Of course, if I died, though, while you know, dying and drowning. Obviously, even with the little boy, I soothed him by, he never got to the surface of water in time. So he died seeing the water and the light above him, feet and feet above him. He never, he just like was underwater and couldn't keep breathing. And so he he passed away underwater. Um, and so that's what my little past life experienced. And so of course, in the riptide, I was not excited to theoretically have a scenario like that again, um, because I don't care about dying. The unpleasant moments while being alive on the way to dying, that I would rather be a pleasant experience. So I can say, you know, I'd rather not be burned alive. I'd rather not drowned. I'd rather not have something unpleasant in the body as I'm going to die. But dying itself, I don't care. <laughs> That's I'm excited for that. So I would just prefer it to be a peaceful transition between this realm and the next. So nothing really has changed. Although the other day, I just had an interesting dream that was really poignant. I saw my puppy, Franklin, Ben Franklin. And in the dream, he ate a bunch of kind of like asbestos or something in the vents of the floor. I don't know how there were asbestos in the vents of the floor, but he apparently ate a bunch of it. And he was like so stuffed to the gills with all of this asbestos. I just saw what was happening. I like pulled him on the table and I knew he may not be able, as he obviously was going to need to vomit out all of the stuff that was in his system. I said, come on, call the vet. And like, I knew in that dream that I might literally be watching my beloved little Franklin die and watch him kind of suffer in that transition of vomiting and like eventually leaving the body. So I woke up at three in the morning, kind of like teary eyed. And my inner voice was just showing me through that dream, 
even pets don't die. So even though I can know my parents will die and my siblings will die and my and you know family members, grandparents, everybody everybody dies and I know that on a human level I don't I don't worry for them. But seeing this little puppy that I love so much go through this uncomfortable situation, my intuition was kind of showing me even pets don't die. And I know that obviously, but like seeing that and then having to actually come to peace about that and go, okay, so he could go through this little experience that would be so unpleasant for him if he ate all that asbestos. And then just, I didn't see him actually, I don't know at the end of the dream if he did die or not die. I just knew as he was starting to release and vomit out some of the asbestos that he may, his body turned to that shaky, cold, clammy feeling, you know, when you're really sick and your body shifts into that temperature. He just felt that way. And I just kind of felt empathetically into that feeling in him. And I was like, oh, I don't know if his body's going to be able to handle this um, releasing of all that stuff. And uh, if he dies, obviously I would have been sad, but I needed to remember like he's going to Bella Vida. <laughs> he doesn't actually have to not exist anymore just because of that physical transition. But there was, of course, a little bit of tears watching him die. Actually more tears watching him die than if a parent or grandparent died because I, when my grandpas died um, around the COVID period, they both passed away. I was excited for them. I was thinking, my goodness, like they have currently based on where their lives led them through COVID and just the pain in their bodies and one of them losing a bit of the consciousness in the mind. I was like, yeah, go. When you are ready, like go, go, go. Do not stick around. It is fine to let go. So it's kind of an inner inwardly kind of um, helping, I say cheer them on, but like uh, helping soothe their potential fears inwardly, kind of talking to them from my inside of myself. It, it felt really good to help. So on the human level, I've been much more cavalier about death, but on the pet level, I guess there was still something to, to integrate and say, yeah, even the, and I remember this with an inner voice client who I said, inner voice, can they eat anything they want to eat? And it said, yes. And then it said, if they want to eat a pig, can they eat a pig? And it said, yes. And I didn't know, but the woman didn't like eating pork, but I picked on the word pig, which obviously would have triggered her mind. And I said, okay, so why can she eat the pig? And it said, because the animals don't die. And I was like, oh my gosh, I never even thought about that. Never occurred to me. Yeah, the humans don't die. But had I also recognized the consciousness of the animals don't die either. Of course, suffering on the planet is not great. So suffering animals or even suffering deaths of humans like me dying in a riptide or other suffering kinds of deaths, not a pleasant thing to have in this duality. But the other side's not where the suffering is. It's on this side is where the unpleasant part exists. Okay. Now we have Emma Scott who said, hi, Bella, looking forward to the episode. Wondering your thoughts on boundaries and allowing. If all is allowed, how can, should boundaries be thought of? Off to ask my inner voice as well. Well, good. I'm glad you're asking your inner voice too, but boundaries and allowing. I remember one inner voice client asked, no, it was a podcast question. And it was during one of those inner voice question. It was the Ella Bella call a podcast from last fall. And I remember it said so succinctly, be as close as you can and still be kind. So as far as boundaries, because the question someone else asked was, I have difficulty with my family members and going home to my immediate family. I think this person's an adult, but going back to mom and dad's house and the family members for holidays or something like that was tough for her. And so she asked what to do about it. And my inner voice said, be as close to them as you can and still be kind. If you can be 20 feet close and still be kind, be 20 feet. If you need two miles, be two miles. Two states, be two states. Two time zones, two time zones. So basically it was very simply saying, and it's such a beautiful, clever, simplistic way that boundaries and stuff, as long as there's kindness and not toxicity essentially, that's great. So if you can be married to somebody and be around them 24-7 and there's kindness and beauty, then great. If you can be around people two days a week, great. If it's two days a year, then that's what it is. So that would be from the inner voice I've heard. And it makes so much sense, right? Like, And it doesn't mean you being kind either. It could be how not kind the other person can be to you. So maybe it's you've got a family member that likes to be mean to you for some reason or a family friend or I don't know, a neighbor, something like that. Just creating the boundaries so that kindness still exists. Not pushing yourself past a place where it's not kind anymore. How simple is that? 
not always easy for the mind. Go into your inner voice with more clarity on your own scenarios you might be thinking about, but ultimately it just makes a lot of sense. Okay, Jamie says, question, how do you remain at peace when you're not creating a course or working? I have a traditional nine to five, but don't always have work to do. And this makes my mind anxious. I try to remind myself that I'm being paid for value. I add not time worked, but I work within a system that values time commitment over all else. Okay, so how do I remain at peace when you're not working or creating a course? Okay, well, I don't have this story about time commitment over all else at all. So I don't have any of these belief systems. So I can't speak to anything that might be relevant, Jamie, for you, honestly, because I don't have any story, as you said, about peace when I'm not creating a course or working. I flow with my inner voice about work. So naturally that if I don't feel like working, you couldn't pay me enough money to work. <laughs> like I can't be pushed um, like a cat. Like it just doesn't want to move. And it's like, I'm not going to go anywhere right now. So I don't really have any of that story in myself. But as far as the story you have around traditional nine to five that doesn't always have work to do and it makes your mind anxious. Okay, let's look there. I try to remind that being paid for time and for value. It's going to be something that I think a lot of people are going to be faced with as Also, AI starts to make a lot of jobs irrelevant or easier and faster and more efficient. This idea of having more and more time, even in our modern times, we ultimately often, some people are working crazy long hours, so that's not to say there still exists like that, but there's a lot of ease and I guess technology especially is making a lot of things different. So time, which has previously been a somewhat very scarce resource for a lot of people, is going to become more plentiful. So I think what you're coming into is something that a lot of people will have to face. For me personally, my fears on time was having too much time, but it wasn't from not being a value. It was from the fear of not knowing if I would, I don't know, die of existential boredom or I think actually that's probably some part of it. And so I had to like go into the courage of being able to not over plan my life and go into the nothingness of a week without anything planned and not working and not doing anything. This was in Australia in like 2018, 17, I think I was facing this. I remember almost having a panic attack at a department store because I thought the only thing I had to do that day was buy sunglasses, which I obviously didn't have to buy sunglasses. I just wanted to, but I didn't have anything else on the docket. And I remember feeling there was a girl at the WeWork that I was going to just for pure something to do time. Um, I was there in the first part of the day and she said she had to go to the DMV to the driver license place and get a driver's license, which obviously is not a very glamorous activity for most people in parts of the world. But I was jealous of her having something to do because I, at that point of my life, didn't have anything to do that day or any other day coming up in the near future. I didn't have many friends there. I was really living kind of an isolated, ascetic life (laughs) in a major city with lots of people all around rushing to things to do, but I wasn't doing really much of anything. And that was what I was disliking and also aligned to doing, was actually facing what happens. And as I went into that period myself, I realized that I didn't actually get existentially bored. I just usually got tired early in the night. So I would go to bed around seven or eight, and then I would wake up at dawn around 4 a.m. So as I totally let go of time in that period of life, I noticed that my body just as I stopped doing things from my mind or from trying to plan too much stuff going on, it just became um, my body just adjusted to the sun and would wake up early, go to bed early, and I always found that I never was existentially bored or even rarely even felt the feeling of boredom, even though that was a huge fear of my mind at the time. So the anxiousness I can relate to, but that's where it was coming from for me. So I would go into your own inner voice about why your mind, and mine, as you noticed, didn't have anything to do with assigned value to myself being more or less worthy. But I did interact with this idea of the empty schedule versus a full schedule. So when I was in 2014, 15, I think, when my husband and I were living in Austin, Texas, I was so overscheduled. And this isn't the first 100 episodes of The Lively Show, actually. It's like 2014, 2015. I remember just sitting on the side of the road thinking, I finally built this dream kind of way of helping people with the podcast. I was interviewing the big names back then. And I was so overscheduled and so miserable that I was like, oh my God, I don't even like my life. And this is exactly what I always wanted it to be. And here I am in it, but I'm so exhausted that I don't even like it. And it's not even 
worth what I thought it would be. Um, that period of my life was exhausting, but I wasn't afraid of it because I knew it was going to happen every day. I had every single hour of my day color coded in some kind of color for some of activity on the Google calendar for the rest of like the month or the months after that. And then in fast forward three years later, I'm in Australia with nothing on the calendar, no color bars, maybe one or two for the week was all that was on there. So I was really actually way more afraid not as tired, obviously, because I could sleep as much as I wanted, but afraid of what that week would be like. And I realized it's something that most people don't experience until they're in a retirement time. Not only, but I think a lot of people do go into that kind of like, oh my God, what's on my calendar? I have nothing necessarily needed to do. So it's not a very common thing, especially at someone at like what I was 33 at the time. So it's a really strange time because most women I knew were having little kids and God knows I was trying, but unsuccessfully not having them at that time with any partners in my life at the time. So I was just in this isolation period, but I realized that the fear of the too much time actually was in part a fear of the unknown because when I had the calendar color coded with everything, there was less, there's overwhelm and exhaustion, but less fear of the unknown because I knew that what I was going to do every day, I would probably be about 70% accurate to what I would end up actually doing the next day. Everything didn't always happen, but most of it did, or some of it went to plan. Some of it went differently, but there was a lot of like, you know, knowing what's going to happen tomorrow because you got an idea from what you did before. And so this unknown weeks and weeks of unknown emptiness was this crevasse of nothingness that was far more scary because it was unknown what would happen. But the time actually fell together and life flowed and it slowed down and I got comfortable with slow. I got comfortable with spaciousness. I got comfortable with ultimately ease. And obviously I far prefer a middle road between the complete color coding and the complete emptiness. I prefer, for me, I like and find that one session of work a week of coaching and teaching is very joyful for me. I love doing those coaching calls. And you know, if you've taken them, I'll sit there for four to six hours sometimes doing those calls so happily with so much energy because I really have a lot to give to those periods of time when I'm coaching. I'm working because I'm not overburdened the rest of the week. Of course, we have meetings and stuff. And right now there's a lot going on for BellaLively.com. So I've got more meetings than usual and other periods of time. But also I have very little social life happening. So it's kind of fun. It keeps me kind of moderately busy and occupied, but not too much. So I'm probably living, Jamie, a similar amount of time. If you have more time than you're used to, but you're doing work, that's kind of that middle road is probably where I'm living. But I think it's amazing personally. I love it. I think that openness is wonderful too, though. It's now that I've gotten used to that openness, what ended up happening for me is that as I let go, time started to serve me and fit me like a glove. And so having to face the too much time fears, then I saw what would happen if I just let that happen. And it life just fit me like a glove. Time just serves me so well. So that was a huge gift out of that period of time of facing the other side of the pendulum of from two cramps of time to nothing on the schedule at all. Again, found the middle road, found the higher path, the having some stuff, but not too much because God knows I now love my spaciousness. And I don't know that you're going to have to go into your own inner voice and beanbags about value for time, Jamie, because that one um, is an inner journey to find. Okay. Now we have Lena who says, I'm learning so much from the beauty of joy. Thanks. My question is, do you have any recommendation to get more into the habit of asking first your intuition before taking action? Okay. Any recommendation to get more into the habit of asking first your intuition before taking action? So you're not used to asking your intuition first, it sounds like. So then I would start in the morning. My suggestion would be in the morning, whether it's when you're laying in bed, if you're totally alone, that's probably easy to do. If you have kids or a family, that may not be easy to do totally alone in bed because you're probably not alone in bed. <laughs> but uh, if you, even if it's with family, maybe you do it while you're getting ready for the day, depending on what that looks like in the morning for you. But I would say at some point in the day, turning on your phone's voice recorder and letting your inner voice talk to you and asking back and forth the questions and then listen for the answers and just let them brain dump out of you. What should I do today, inner voice? What would you like me to do? I would start from the morning if you want a recommendation because that's obviously the first time you get the chance each day to remember to do it. And hopefully by doing it in the morning, that would be helpful to remember the rest of the day. You can keep asking your intuition for more guidance. 
Now we have Bexter Daly who said, hi, Bella, just wondering, do you think fear is ever an indicator uh, for not doing something? Thanks so much. I think that there can be knowingnesses not to do something. Absolutely. Absolutely. If something doesn't feel good, <laughs> it could be a beanbag. But ultimately, even if it doesn't feel good and you get through the beanbag, you can still not want to do something. Okay. So let's say you, and this is, oh, here's a great story on this. Um, at the same time, you don't have to have fear in order to know not to do something. I remember this from Eckhart in the Costa Rica retreat. It's one of the first retreats I ever went to years and years ago, 2016, 20, yeah, probably 2016. He said, you know, people don't need psychological fear not to do something. So he said, you can tell someone or a child not to touch the stove because it's hot and it will burn you, but you don't have to make them afraid of the stove. <laughs> so you can tell them the common sense thing, which is don't touch the stove because it will hurt you. You don't have to make them afraid. So you can choose not to take a job from a very calm place of intuitional wisdom versus afraid to take the job. You can just know. I don't know why, but I'm not supposed to take that job. And you don't have to have fear associated with the choice to not do it or the choice not to be with friends with somebody because of how they're behaving. You don't have to be their friend, but you don't have to be afraid of not being their friend or afraid of being their friend. Does that make sense? So yeah, you want to release the fear because that's a beanbag, but then you can still take the same choice and not feel the fear. So let's say it's the stove. You don't touch the stove when you're feeling the fear of touching the stove. Delete the beanbag, but then you'll still see the clarity underneath it is that touching the stove's not in your best interest. So I would say that. Deleting the beanbag, the fear does not need to exist for the clarity to emerge. So I, it's so true. Clarity doesn't have an emotion attached. My inner voice said this to me once. I was so clear after a really big experience happened in my life and I wasn't upset. And I was like shocked that I was not upset by the situation. Could not believe I was just so calm and thriving. I was like, how am I not in pieces in her voice. And it said, it's because you're clear. Emotions are not clarity. So like Eckhart was saying, you can be clear about not wanting to touch a stove. You can be clear about marrying someone, not marrying someone. You could be clear about uh, anything, taking the job, leaving the job, spending the money, not spending the money. You can be clear about anything without emotions attached. And you, most humans though, my inner voice said, every human can feel emotion, no matter how aware or unaware they are. Emotions are a default that humans, even from life one, get to have an experience. But clarity comes from awareness and wisdom. And it's so rare. It's getting more common, but it's still so, so rare. How many people are talking about the idea of clarity and inner wisdom? Not many yet. More coming in slowly, but it's not typically what people are even thinking about because it's not in their awareness yet. But the emotions are an everyone, no matter how clear or unclear they are. So the feeling of fear, you'll want to release, but then the clarity under that fear will show you that either the fear was false and you can keep going with the situation anyways, or that the fear doesn't need to be there, but you still shouldn't touch the oven or the stove. Okay. Now we have Maker's Mess. Byron Bay, who says, hey, Bella, my question for you is, I've been doing a lot of inner voice work and self-discovery lately, but I'm now finding that the deeper I go, the more disconnected I feel to the physical world. I have really started to feel like I don't belong with people or in situations that used to bring me so much fulfillment. I just feel like I want to remove myself from that as much as I can, but then also feel like I'm missing out. Did this ever happen to you? Thank you, Mel. Yes, absolutely. Totally can connect to this. And I at the moment at least, have very few people in my life and only of the highest caliber. So for me, I have simplified and streamlined all my possessions, all my connections, all of the things in my life. I have just done a huge overhaul. I think that the name change is like a great era marker for this this culling, this releasing. I also went through one of these kind of transformations of connections and, you know, to different things, even when I sold the house and was traveling nomadically, but even 
since then in this summer last year, I've been going through this massively. I don't personally feel the lack of feel like I'm missing out too much now. I'm just in so much joy in my own reality. And even though it's much smaller, it's so enriching and fulfilling and not draining. Like anything that feels like a drain is pretty much released from my life or then ends up coming up to be seen to be released from my life or transformed so that it's not draining. So anything that's draining is just going away or has to be transformed. One of the two is not going to stay in a state of drain. (laughs) So for you, you're probably just new at it. And so of course it feels different. So of course it feels like you might be missing out at first, but as you keep going and trusting and flowing and going into your inner voice and keep going for what feels like the joy within you, you won't feel that feeling of missing out. It will transpire to transition out of you. It won't become, because what you'll end up seeing is like, you remember how you've been before. Like for example, for me, I used to love Portugal. Obviously I lived there for two years. I was very happy when I was there. I don't miss Portugal at all. And I know there are people that I appreciate still there. There are things that I still appreciate about Portugal, but I don't feel like I'm missing out at all about the experience because I'm so present and happy where I am now. And even Australia, loved my three months in Australia. I'm excited to go back again, but I don't feel like I'm missing out because I'm not there now. But that has flipped as the actual experience of joy in the reality I'm actually in has just heightened and brightened so much that this is just where I prefer to be rather than those other places. So the FOMO goes away and I suspect that it very well might for you, maybe not in a few months, but in a year or two, we'll see. And you also might go through periods where you feel more or less disconnected to the physical world. So that too can go through ebbs and flows. So right now you might be going deep, deep inward, You'll kind of anchor there. You'll really integrate whatever you're integrating right now. And then you might find yourself wanting to be more social and wanting to be more active in the world. I might myself as well after this too do the same. I'm not saying that I'll always have such a tight, small, little life. Maybe I will, maybe I won't. But I know that the joy caliber that I've currently reached with it, I don't want to (laughs) dip. So I'm going to keep the joy fulfillment factor the same if the outer experiences of connections and community kind of stuff maybe does come back into my life in a new way. Interesting, but what I really want and cherish the most is the feelings that I feel now. And so I wanna keep that as much as I can, but obviously life willing, intuition allowing, guidance coming from within. So that would be my suggestion. I can relate to it very, very, very much to many eras and ebbs and flows of my last seven years. There were periods where I was more in that, less in that. There were periods of time, especially in Hawaii, where I was almost always, always alone. And I remember seeing there were people on the beach that were playing cricket. I think there were South Africans on the beach. And I was like, oh, just really like international people in Hawaii and America, not that weren't American. I was like, oh my gosh, I'd love to talk to them about Cape Town. Like part of my mind would have in other times in my life wanted to connect to that group of people. But the actual energy I had to expend with any new people was literally nil. I had nothing. I was going so deep in myself. It was kind of like a a vortex dragging me down into myself. And I had zero energy, more than ordering a coffee (laughs) to meet someone new. I could order a coffee and talk to a barista for that amount of time, but anything else more than that, I just didn't have that energy because that wasn't the season my intuition was guiding me into. It was guiding me into a season of clarity within myself. So I can definitely relate, but I don't think that it will stay as FOMO forever, and it may not always stay as isolated feeling forever. It might go in and out of different periods of deepening and then widening, deepening and then widening to their outside world. Okay, now we have Beth Arthur who said, what do you do when you're scared to follow your inner voice fully? Well, it depends on the subject, obviously, and now there's not much fear about following my inner voice fully because I've done it for so long. Part of what happens, which is nice, is that as you do get more comfortable and have a longer history of following your inner voice, your mind relaxes and it helps it happen easier more of the time. So it stops making it a big hassle to do it. It just relaxes and trusts, you know, it just doesn't resist so much. So that's typically true, but if it ever would to happen on bigger little things, you can obviously just follow your mind's choice. <laughs> you can do that. It's totally within your power. And sometimes it's very powerful to do that because when you do follow your mind instead of your inner voice, 
whether you've done it on purpose or whether you've done it out of fear and reactivity, whatever the case is, when you do not follow your inner voice, you often get to see the ramifications and outcomes of when you don't follow your inner voice. And that is very helpful because your mind can see what happens when you follow your inner voice some of the time and when you don't follow your inner voice some of the time. And some of the reasons that the mind will trust your inner voice so much is because of the times you didn't follow the inner voice. And this actually reminds me of one time I always comes to mind when I think of not following my inner voice is like on a menu, it'll want to order something and then I order something else instead. And then I like it less than what I would have ordered if I followed my inner voice's answer or a drink on the drinks menu. I remember that my birthday, I ordered this thing that had rose in it, but my intuition didn't want that. And it just didn't taste good. (laughs) And I was like, oh, I just got the wrong drink because I, I should have known better to follow my inner voice than rather than a history of me saying, I like all rose things. It wasn't actually that drink itself didn't taste very nice. Um, the one that always comes to mind though is the nail polish. I remember in Sydney when I first got there in like 2016, the first week I wanted to get a manicure and my intuition didn't want to go to this one spot that I saw basically on the map or in person or whatever. So My intuition was like, don't go, don't go. But I saw a cute Frenchie that was sitting there and I didn't know anywhere else to go. So I went anyways and had the worst manicure of my life. It only lasted three days. It took really long to actually happen. The dog was the only really good part about the entire experience and didn't have anything to do with my nails. And then a week later, I found an amazing salon that I loved for years more than any other salon in the world. And it was right like a tenth of a mile away from the salon that I was at at the time. And I remember that the whole time I got that first manicure, I didn't feel like I should have it. And then I did it. And then I got this bad result. And I was like, ooh, remember, note to self, <laughs> trust the inner voice. So it's easier to reject your inner voice, I guess, and follow yourself on the small things rather than the big ones. That said, sometimes there's a lot of fear in the mind that will make you reject the big decisions as well. Uh, but for me, the little ones is usually where I might have the courage to step off the inner voice path far more than the big ones to me. They matter so much. I, I wouldn't really want to go against the inner voice. I would just ask for more clarity on the bigger stuff, obviously, or the small things. As always, ask more questions. I'll let this be the last question since we're over an hour here, but I will say number one thing for people beginning on the inner voice stuff is that they don't think to ask 10 more questions. They get an inner voice answer and then they don't like or understand the answer they get. And so they stop asking questions and they stay stuck. (laughs) They don't get more clarity. Keep asking 10 more follow-up questions to get more clarity on the answer you first got. So you should have like, why did you say that inner voice? Why not go to this nail salon? What other nail salon should I go to? Should I go today or should I wait? Should I go tomorrow? or ask in the next day, should I go today? Like, just ask more questions instead of just yes, no, and then make a choice. Like, ask more for more clarity if your mind feels like it needs it. All right, there you go, my friends. Thank you so much as always. And as I said before, March 22nd, the launch party, 6 p.m. London time. If you want to join us, by all means, you can do so over at justlively.com slash launch party. Thanks so much. Until next time in a few days, may something wonderful happen to you today. (laughs) 